Hey, Clay, throw that microphone back on. Yes, sir. We know you're from, uh, God, I don't even like saying the word, Saskatchewan. Wait a minute. That, that was a long time ago. <laughs> you're still you're still from there, right? Like that's that's your birth certificate. I was born there. Yeah, yeah. you wear your Rough Riders jersey from time to time. Uh huh. What's uh, Saskatchewan's official sport? You Uh, were mentioning this Canadian trivia stuff. I'm going to say lacrosse. No, that's Canada's, but that's a really good guess. Curling became Saskatchewan's official sport in 2001. You weren't living there then, so you get a you get get a a pass, (laughs) even though you failed on that. I just figured I would. Play off your last story there that 62% of Canadians are not very good at the Canadian trivia stuff. Hey, did you know, because I was looking at <laughs> I was looking at some of the questions, right? Yes. Um, here's something. Did, did you know this? That uh, in 1965, former, or f- I'm sorry, in 1965, future, mm-hmm. future Prime Minister John Turner rescued former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker from the ocean while they were both on holidays in Barbados. What? I never, I never knew that. Email me that story. It sounds I, like... I will. I will. Some, these are some of the questions. It sounds like a lie. That's John that a true, Turner jumps that's, into the ocean no, and saves John Diefenbaker. Weren't from, these true or false questions? No. That's, this is apparently true. That's false. I, well... Fake, no, no. Anyway, you, you send me that story. Anyway, it's Clay up Young. It's production right now. Thanks, Clay. Love you, brother. Clay Young with us until, well, he's here through, through the duration and for the rest of the week. I think he's on like a 97-day stretch of work now that he's got off holidays. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. You know, I was surprised that uh, the official sport of Saskatchewan is curling. I thought it was losing. <laughs> It's too late. It's too late. And Jerry, you know what? Uh, For all of our love-hate relationship with Saskatchewan, the Blue Bombers could win every Labor Day Classic till the end of time, every Banjo Bowl till the end of time. But in 2007, you know the Bombers and the Rough Riders played in the Grey Cup. Mm -hmm. You know who won that game, right? Uh, We won't talk about that. Yeah, so the Riders can always point to the Grey Cup banner. Anyway, Mackling and McGarry, no McGarry if you haven't figured it out already. For those of you who have been following the saga of Mackling and McGarry since we were on the air in the afternoons, and made our move to mornings, we've been complaining about our chairs. Brent Williamson, our big boss with the hot sauce here at 680 CJOB, Global News Winnipeg. We got brand new chairs yesterday. I don't hear the squeaking. No squeaking, nothing. And they are so comfortable. So, Brent, thank you very much. I have nothing to complain about at this point. But I do. Uh, I think I need a new chair behind the glass now. We'll make that happen. All right. We'll make that happen. Well, apparently you're the man who can make it happen. Well, it only took uh, <laughs> 22 months. So, you know, don't be holding your breath on that one. One of our regular listeners and texters at 780-6868, Eve, says, one of the sets of lights at 59 in the on the north perimeter uh, is out the south ones. So we had thunder, lightning, rain overnight, and we know that sometimes that uh, does cause some problems with our traffic signals. So if you're seeing any issues otherwise with traffic signals or traffic, 780-6868-781-1320 on the traffic phone. We have a busy, busy morning plan for you this morning, including, I don't know if you were aware, 
Jerry, Donald Trump was in Duluth, Minnesota last week. He's going to be in Fargo, North Dakota tonight. I don't know what it is about the upper Midwest that has uh, the president of the United States so attracted, but in successive weeks, you could actually drive to a rally from Winnipeg to see the president if you were so inclined. Well, Global News reporter Amber Magookan is going to do just that on our behalf. We'll catch up with her just after 8 o'clock, and we will also hear from Valor FC's new head coach announced yesterday. Could not have made a better choice. And have you ever been hacked? I got a letter from my bank the other day saying I needed a new bank card. I was going to have to do some things with my personal information in order to keep it safe because they had been hacked. Ransomware affected a business that we all know about. Well, a good friend of 680 CJOB will tell you about that after 630 and how that happens. It's Mackling and McGarry, Sons McGarry. U.S. President Donald Trump has been given a win by the American Supreme Court, which upheld its his travel ban yesterday. Global News Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco reports on how that may impact the latest immigration debate. Just like most Americans, it seems the court was split over how to handle this issue, and they ruled five to four that the president's existing travel ban can in fact stand. The dissenting judges actually pointed out unequivocally that this all started as a campaign promise by Trump to ban Muslims from entering the United States, and to this day, five of the seven countries on the list are predominantly Muslim. Now, today's decision pours fuel on the already explosive immigration debate taking place in this country, and the president's victory lap seemed to blend his win in the courts with his latest musings about denying legal due process to those migrants illegally crossing the border from Mexico. At a minimum, we have to make sure that we vet people coming into the country. We know who's coming in. We know where they're coming from. Now, Trump sees this as a win, but how might his administration use this ruling to help advance his immigration agenda? Well, at this point, all we can do is take hints from what top Trump administration officials are saying. The attorney general, whose Justice Department has defended the travel ban in court, said the ruling ensures the president's authority remains in place, and it ensures that Trump has broad discretion to protect the interests of the U.S. Now, Trump will surely be keeping that in mind as he sets up his next court fight over plans to detain migrant families with children indefinitely pending trial. As of right now, migrant families can only be held for 120 days. Now, as Canada prepares to fire its first retaliatory shot in a trade war with the Trump White House, our country's lawmakers got an earful from industries and unions who may be hurt in this back and forth. Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken reports on those concerns and what Ottawa will do to help affected workers. There is broad support from industry and unions to fight back against Trump's tariff with this retaliatory tariff. That said, there are going to be some casualties and one of those is a specialty steel maker called Patriot Forge. They're based in Brantford, Ontario and its CEO was on Parliament Hill begging for federal help. Without relief from the Canadian countermeasures, we will not be able to adapt our operation and we will be put out of business. There are 250 Canadians who work at Patriot Forge in Ontario. 
and none of us want to be the first economic casualties of a trade war. Patriot is about to be paying $700,000 a month in tariffs, some to Canada on the raw steel it imports, and another tariff to the U.S. when it exports a finished steel product. I need help. So we headed to the finance minister's meeting to see what could be done. What will you do to help out Patriot Forge? We absolutely are going to stand behind Canadian businesses who are challenged by these tariffs. That said, Morneau did not offer any specifics today, only a promise to provide more details very shortly, Donna. Now Canada is about to launch its retaliatory tariffs on steel and, as Drax might say overnight, aluminium. Are they likely to work? Maybe. The big fear here is that Trump will retaliate to our retaliation and do it with a 25% tariff on cars and light trucks from Canada. A 25% tariff on cars and parts would cause what we like to call a Carmageddon. And overnight, a $32,000 car becomes an unsellable $40,000 car. That's Carmageddon, and it would affect hundreds of thousands of workers on both sides of the border. Of course, the big question is, could Canada go toe-to-toe with the U.S. if this trade war escalates? Well, that's definitely a topic of debate right now. Some say, no, no, we cannot. I believe Trump is a bear. We shouldn't be poking him too much. The bear will start roaring. All I'm doing is asking you, please, step quietly. Others say we have no choice because Trump only responds to strength. I'll tell you what, if you don't poke the bear, he's going to eat your lunch. And that's exactly what's coming down the pike. So here we go. Canada is about to return fire for the first time in this trade war. There could be lots of casualties. Buckle up. Yeah, Carmageddon coming to the Ontario-Michigan border, perhaps. Maybe they could sell tickets at the new is it, um, Little Caesars Arena in Detroit. I don't know how we'd go about this, but there has to be some way to monetize it, make some money off it. You're a promoter, Jerry. Sunday, Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Carmageddon. I like it. With Truckasaurus. You know, we'll we'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. Fantastic. Hey, it's 620 on this Wednesday morning. We're halfway through the work week. Maybe it's your first day of the work week, or maybe it's your first day of holidays. Congratulations, you made it through the summer, or at least you made it through the spring to your summer holidays, and uh, thanks everyone for taking some time with us this morning. Hey, I don't think it made it into Kelly's news this morning, so I'll let you know some sad news from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers family. Perhaps you'll remember Jay Washington, or as Coach Ray Yock used to call him, Jay Washington, running back, passed away yesterday. Uh, Jay Washington was one of the most explosive running backs in club's history. Uh, That posted by Joe Pascucci, former uh, CKND slash global sports reporter. Couldn't agree more, Joe. He was a Blue Bomber from 1974 to 1979, rushed for 5,736 yards with a 6.3-yard rushing average and scored 30 touchdowns in his career as a Blue Bomber. Number 27, Jay Washington, passing away yesterday at the age of 66. It's Mackling and McGarry on this Wednesday morning. Behind the glass, Jerry's here. Brett McGarry is not. Who are you playing here? Who's this? I recognize the song, Scooby Snacks. That's the fun-loving criminals. Nothing fun loving about these criminals, let me tell you. A Winnipeg woman is speaking out about a crime she never saw coming. And maybe 
most people who are victimized in this fashion probably aren't seeing it coming. Thieves ripped the copper right out of her air conditioning unit in order to make a few bucks. And it's the latest in a series of copper and metal thefts that have involved everything from catalytic converters to the pipes and new homes under construction. But police say what is happening now could be partially fueled by the meth craze. Users looking for few quick bucks and targeting any piece of copper they can find. Global's Amber Magookan explains. Copper is something that's in all air conditioning units. They're valuable pieces that you may not notice until they're gone. So they took the whole pipe, uh, cutting it right at the entry into the house. When Marcy Naismith arrived at her St. James home last week, she found it unusually hot and humid. The reason? The copper piping connecting the air conditioner to her home had been stolen. I was angry for quite a few days and you know, you just kind of go into survival mode, right? It's like it's hot, what do you do? Experts say taking the piping is dangerous because the refrigeration chemicals are inside, but that's not enough to stop some thieves. Essentially they're looking for the scrap metal value of the copper line set. So this is something that is uh, connected to the air conditioner and then they essentially come and just cut a few feet off or however much is available. People can sell scrap copper piping for $3 per pound, but the quote Naismith received to fix the damage, $1,200. So I'm not sure why it's worth it to them to get $10. So I'm a big believer in karma and I hope karma comes to get them. <laughs> Police say what's fueling the thieves, the city's drug problem. We can attribute some of it to methamphetamine, um, that it's a very strong drug that individuals are just looking for that next high and they're looking for some quick money. Um, but it is an issue that we've seen in Winnipeg for some time. It's a crime police admit is hard to prevent, but they suggest getting surveillance cameras that can help you prevent crime and also catch criminals after the fact. Thank you, Amber. Uh, th this is not brand new, right? Especially in new home, new housing developments in new homes where... You know, if things are not locked up, thieves will go in and take the copper. And this has really, really become prevalent in the last few years, Jerry, because the price of copper has gone sky high. Like the best example I can use is 14.2 typical wire used for your house. It's tripled in price in the last six years or so. Yeah, it's gone up really fast. And I, there's really no reason for it, as far as I can... I don't know. They're not using that copper to make pennies anymore. There should be <laughs> plenty of it around. You know what? You always are the voice of reason behind the glass, <laughs> Jerry. Yeah, it, it is bizarre, but not brand new. But you know what? Let's just keep an eye out for one another. Now, another story Clay's been telling you about that we'll dig into a little bit deeper here. A local mattress and furniture supply store was forced to pay a hacker who shut down its server effectively putting a halt to services and sales there. Winnipeg's best sleep center was hit by the hacker earlier this month with ransomware. Hal Anderson had a chat with the victim. Let's uh, do a little eavesdropping here. A friend of mine and a friend of CJOB's joins us on the phone now, a recent victim of ransomware, David Keem at Best Sleep Center. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon, Hal. So tell me what happened. Well, <laughs> that's an opening question, eh? <laughs> uh, I got to work on the 11th of uh, June, and my server was lying on one of my employees' desks. 
or you know, I didn't. It wasn't apparent to me immediately. It was my server, but it was a rather large computer. Yeah. And uh, I said, "Gee, you know, that's a large computer. What's it doing there?" And he says, "Well, it's our server, and uh, you know, it's been hacked." Oh, okay. You know, so we had uh, what they call ransomware yeah. attached to our servers, which uh, you know makes somebody else. Um, able to not necessarily, con- well, just keep you out of your uh, information and your ability to do business until uh, until it uh, is fixed. Wow. And so how soon after you realized you were hacked, did you hear from them and, and then get into how much they wanted and, and did you pay them and, and all that stuff? First of all, how soon after the hack did you realize, hey, we got a message here, they're looking for money? Well, the, you know, the, the, the message that they're looking for money was already, uh, you know, apparent by the time I got there on Monday morning. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they had realized that they had accomplished their mission. And, uh, and yeah, so they wanted uh, 0.6 of a Bitcoin. And uh, so this goes in the other directions, too. But they wanted 0.6 of a Bitcoin. A Bitcoin was worth about eh, $6,600, $6,700 American at the time. So they wanted about $6,000, uh, um, about, yeah, about 6000 Canadian dollars. Hmm. And so what did you say? Because, uh, listen, experts are on both sides of this. Some experts say don't pay. Other experts say if you can afford it, you should pay. And so did you decide right away that you were going to pay, or did you negotiate, or, or how did it go down? Well, we negotiated, um, uh, but you have to pay. Like, I mean, if, if you get ransomware, there's been some rather large Canadian hospitals that I've heard of that, you know, got hit with this. And you have two choices. You either rebuild your database from scratch, which costs more than paying. And uh, the way to stay away from it is, 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 you know, to keep your, keep your servers up to date. Now, Keem references hospitals there. I don't know specifically of any hospitals. Maybe you know something that I don't, and, and maybe that's been in other news items, but I can tell you for sure that at least one national bank in our country has been hacked, forcing those institutions to, at the very least, offer credit monitoring services for their customers and almost as bad or maybe worse is the fact that they have to admit that they are vulnerable to these hackers. I can only imagine this is keeping IT managers awake at night is definitely a reminder for you and for me to make sure we're changing our passwords on a regular basis as well. So there you go. You can learn from what's going on to other businesses in town and across the country around the world they are holding your information hostage and if it's valuable enough people are paying they're paying up and they're paying dearly channel eva dell clay young kelly moore and of course behind the glass jerry joining me in studio now in the previous segment we told you about a homeowner who had the copper piping for her air conditioner stolen. We also heard about the Best Sleep Center server being hacked and their their data put up for ransom. In both of these stories, the victims were left with little choice but to pay big bucks to replace or get back what was taken. Today, we're going to have some coffee and talk about theft. Have you ever had something stolen from you? Have you ever had 
a lot of things stolen all at once. Uh, why don't we start with Kelly Moore, who's who's nodding yeah. his head in the affirmative. Oh, I'm trying to go back over the list of things, but uh, I remember when we were first married, my wife had a bike stolen. Uh, we've had a a big, heavy bird bath stolen a bird out, of our, bath. out of our yard. That was back in BC. Uh, there was one year we were coming home from BC, and uh, I had the car topper on top of the van. Didn't feel like pulling it into the garage. We got in at about 2 a.m. in the morning, so I left it out in the driveway and had the bedroom window open to hear the smashing of the windows. No. Yeah, and they uh, they, they grabbed a, a couple of purses, and I can't remember what what else was, was taken out. A Walkman, if you remember what that is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, and I think, knock on wood, that was the last time. Yeah. Isn't that, that – boy, oh, boy, I – I'm Shame on me for I'm, not. I'm still getting over the bird bath. Who, who takes know, a bird this, bath? And this thing was heavy. Yeah. It was like, I don't know, 50, 60 pounds. Gee whiz. Yeah. Chantelie Vidal, uh, what uh, precious of yours has been stolen? You know, I think I've been fairly lucky, especially after hearing Kelly's story. Um, the only, Actually, the only uh, really thing that has been precious to me that I got stolen, and it's a weird, it's, I, I got the, these pairs of shoes and I really like them. Because uh, they were comfortable. I went to do some roller derby, and I had left them behind. Okay. Went to go get them. They were gone. They weren't put in the lost and found bin. Somebody somebody with uh, other some other girl with big feet decided that they, <laughs> they fit fingers, her perfectly. Big feet but, uh, and sticky fingers. But growing up, we were at our house in St. James. We were having stuff stolen all the time. Maybe because we had an open an open yard. It wasn't yes. fenced in. So oh. like uh, if the lawnmower was left. We've lost so many lawnmowers. Uh, my, uh, our garage we had a, a detached garage and it was like a three-car garage my dad had tons and tons of tools because he was a mechanic so we've had uh, the garage broken into numerous times especially after my dad passed away and wasn't working out there anymore um the house what the only thing the only people we've ever had break into the house was like uh friends of my brothers looking for booze hmm. and and then once uh we were we had the house painted inside and the painter actually then we noticed our the booze was missing, so we've actually had a lot of booze well, stolen. Lots of alcohol theft. <laughs> Clay, can you top that alcohol theft? No, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm I'm very lucky. I'm I'm horrified at uh, hearing about Kelly. I mean, let's see. I mean, uh, my wife's car got vandalized. They smashed the window looking for stuff. There was nothing in there. I got hacked on Facebook once, and you know I'm so. Uh, I was so paranoid about electronic theft that for the longest time you had to have, have me kicking and screaming before I would do any online banking. I went to my bank. I looked a teller in the eye. Here's my stuff. I'm looking at you. I'm signing this and I'm handing it over. But I mean, I've gotten over that paranoia and I now bank online. But yeah, I mean, for the long, that sleep center thing, that was kind of bizarre, especially the ransom. Yeah. Well, you that's know? what they're doing. That's what these uh, hackers are doing now. And they're, they're you know, forcing you to buy back your own information. Behind the glass, Jerry, have you had anything besides your virtue stolen from you? 
Yeah, actually, uh, there was one time uh, before Sarah and I were married, before we were living together, we had separate houses, and I was over at her house one uh, Sunday morning, uh, sitting on the front porch having a coffee, and these two guys were across the street uh, trying to get people, you know, say, hey, you want us to mow your lawn? We'll mow your lawn. And, and the lady across the street said, absolutely, you can mow my lawn. And so they wheel up, and I said, oh, wow, that looks a lot like my lawnmower. Oh, look, that weed whacker is the exact same one I have, too. Oh, no. uh, that's, that's just weird. And then, then the guy tries to start up the weed whacker, and I said, that's funny. My weed whacker doesn't start either. Oh, and then, and then, it, then something, you know, the light bulb went on. You know, I, I'm going to go home and check my shed. So I went home, I checked my shed, and my weed whacker and my lawnmower were gone. So then I went around. Sarah's, I, Sarah lived like 10 blocks away from me. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, they were just across the street from my house. Um, and so I went around her neighborhood trying to find my lawnmower and weed whacker, and I found my lawnmower. Good and I you. took it back. Did you <laughs> what did you do? Did you take it? Yeah, I took it. What did you say? Not, well, it was just sitting there. I just took it. Oh, I oh, see. Yeah. Stand, but uh, you didn't get. The, well, you didn't, didn't want the weed whacker back because it kind of yeah, sucked, right? I, I no. didn't get the weed whacker. <laughs> I was just gonna say, yeah, you can keep the weed whacker. It doesn't start anyway. <laughs> well, last week I told the story about finding my truck yeah. in the back lane before I even know it. Knew it was stolen. I found it abandoned and wide open uh, in Saint Vitel. Uh, when I was about nineteen, someone broke into our house, and I like came face to face with him on the main floor of wow. our house and I turned my back for a split second he ran out the door he had collected all the phones in the house uh, and purses and everything had them on a sled at the back door so he could make his getaway so he left with nothing but cash everything else was left on the sled my girlfriend at the at the time says I recognize that guy I recognize him. Long story short, she bumped into him at Polo Park four days later. She's about five foot one. This guy's about six three. She went right up to him. I know who you are. I know where you live, and we want all of our stuff back. Fast forward six days later, his mom had phoned my mom, and we had all the money, all the ID, everything back. It's been nearly three years since a horrific impaired driving crash just north of Toronto gripped our entire country. The story, a mother left without her three children and her father. The driver, Marco Muzo, is currently serving a 10-year prison sentence. For the first time, Jennifer Neville Lake is speaking about her loss. With this story, we're joined by Global News reporter Karen Lieberman. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. How are you today? This had to be in uh, a very difficult uh, story, not only to pursue, but to actually sit down and, and do this interview with Jennifer Neville Lake. Yeah, you know what? I mean, obviously I'm a journalist, but I'm a parent. So, I mean, to think about this horrible nightmare that, that Jennifer Neville Lake and her husband Ed are experiencing is, you know, it's gut-wrenching for anybody, let alone another mother. So, I mean, it just breaks your heart. It broke hearts right across the country. I covered the trial, so I you know, got to know Jennifer a little bit during that period and then managed to sit down with her now. And it's been, you know, it's been probably two years since I've seen her. And as you say, it's almost three years since the crash. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely a difficult story to tell. But I think it's important because it's important to her that the children's legacies live on in some way, shape or form. Now, her children who, who lost their lives that day, it was September 27th, 2015, by the way. Daniel was nine, Harrison was five, and Millie was two. And of course, 
there, uh, the three uh, children were with their grandfather, Gary Neville, who was also killed in this horrific cla- crash. Uh, what, I mean, plenty of takeaways from this. And you mentioned it's important that, you know, to, to Jennifer, that her children be remembered. But what, what's the, what's the message for the rest of us? So a couple messages. First of all, the obvious, that ob- that wasn't obvious enough to a driver, don't drink and drive. Um, and I think it's timely given that we're, you know, about to enter into a long weekend. That's when we see a lot of the police out in full force and, you know, constantly that, that message that we're hearing, don't drink and drive, that apparently, you know, in this case, it didn't get through to someone. And, you know, Marco Muzzo got behind the wheel. His blood alcohol was uh, twice the legal limit. He was also speeding. And, um, you know, in one fell swoop, this entire family was decimated. There were six people, in fact, in the vehicle that day, the family's van. The parents were not in the, in the vehicle. It was um, the three children, their grandfather, their grandmother, and their great-grandmother. And the two women survived with major injuries, but the other four, you know, died in that crash. And so there's, there's that. There's the don't drink and drive, which, you know, for many of us is obvious for some still not getting in there. And then there's also, um, you know, the reason Jennifer sat down with me now is that next week she's officially launching a foundation. And so many people have often asked, you know, what can we do? And I asked her in that interview, I said, like, is there anything, is there anything somebody, anyone can do to just make it a little less painful? And she says, you know, support our foundation because it's called Many Hands Doing Good. And it's named for the children and their grandfather. The initials are MHDG, so Millie, Harry, Daniel, and, and Gary. And um, and it's uh, the foundation supports their passions, which were art, art and music. And so the the foundation will help children who need help, you know, financially, to have art and music therapies. Um, and so it's pretty remarkable that she found a way of honoring what made them happy, you know, which was art, music, dance, that sort of thing. Jennifer Neville Lake, she mother of three children. You, you don't, you know, you don't know whether to supplant uh, was is right because I think in mm-hmm. as she continues even three years later, right? She very much is still the mother of these three children. And the quote at the top of the story at globalnews.ca: "Don't know who I am anymore." Yet Jennifer yeah. Neville Lake seems to be finding a way to cope with all this. The first thing I thought of, Karen, was the fact that I'm a, a parent of, of twin boys myself. And quite often mm-hmm. you you hear of parents surviving these things and getting through it because they have to. They have other children to raise. This woman lost all three of her children. And the fact that uh, I'm going to be blunt here, the fact that she's had the will to survive this says an awful lot about her character. Yeah, you know, Jennifer is pretty remarkable, you know, but but it takes a team every single day. You know, Jennifer has no conception of time, for example. You know, people have to tell her it's breakfast, you have to eat. It's lunchtime, you have to eat. The only thing she has now is this foundation, which she pours her heart and soul into, because that's literally all she has. Material things mean nothing. We know that. You know, these were her children. This was the family that she spent 10 years, effectively, since Daniel was nine. So a decade growing. She was growing a family. And in an instant, it, it's gone. It's all gone. So, so who is she? You know, who is Ed? They're having an identity crisis. They don't know who they are. They were parents. You know, this is Jennifer was a mother, a loving mother, a devoted, dedicated mother. And so without her children, you know, there, there's nothing left. 
Karen, uh, thank you for this fine piece of journalism. Thank you for this conversation this morning and to get this message out, as you say, in advance of this Canada Day long weekend. It's an important message and uh, all we can do is send our love and affection uh, to Jennifer and her husband. I'm sorry I missed his name. Ed. Ed Neville Lake. Thank you for this. And uh, Karen, uh, once again, we we appreciate your fine work on a very difficult story to share with all of us. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Karen Lieberman joining us from Toronto. Warrant Officer Jason Patterson is with the Royal Canadian Air Force, so there's the first clue. He works as an airborne electronic sensor operator and is currently the Operations Warrant Officer at Canadian Forces School of Survival and Aeromedical Training at 17 Wing here in Winnipeg. But as we speak, he's in the United Kingdom as Senior Sergeant at the Tower of London. Yesterday, Patterson spoke with 680 CGOB's Julie Buckingham and Christian O'Mell about being chosen for this very special assignment. My supervisor came up to me and knowing I've had a little bit of experience from being in Vimy Ridge for the 80th anniversary of the armistice, uh, doing parades there. And then 2015, I was in Ottawa for the uh, sentry duties for uh, Remember Stay There. He came up to me and asked me if I was willing to do this task. Of course, I said, sure. It sounds like an honor. And uh, my name went submitted up, went all the way to one CAD, RCAFHQ, and the IRS basically selected me that way, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure the process, but my name went all the way up to the top and they picked my name out of the hat, I guess. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Explain uh, what you're doing. What I'm, what I'm doing exactly, um, I'm part of the, of the Canadian contingent that was invited over by the Honourable uh, Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty, the Queen Elizabeth, there to uh, do the duties. Myself, I'm tasked with the uh, crown jewels at the Tower of London. Wow, that's a pretty big honour, isn't it? Oh my God, it is. The history behind it is uh, they have this ceremony called the Ceremony of the Keys, which has been going on for 700 years. I did my first one last night. Uh, what a weight on the shoulders. One being has been done for 700 years, uninterrupted, and then on top of that being uh, the first time the RCA, RCAF has ever done this in our history. It's a huge weight when, with the public watching you. Make sure you didn't mess it up. So we did a good job, so we didn't mess it up. <laughs> what kind of training? Like, I'm assuming I've been to London and I've been to the Tower, so I know these things, there's uh, a lot of pomp and circumstance, if you will. Did you have a lot of training ahead of time? Uh, yes, like any like any military operation, um, training that is involved prior to. So we did um, virtually six weeks of uh, drill training in Winnipeg, where we did concentrate on our own personal drill, make sure we're up to speed on what we need to do. And then we had uh, representations from the Irish Guards to come over and give us a hand with uh, the format and how to do these, the actual ceremonial duties that we're doing here. Oh, and basically, once we got here, we continued on with that training right up to our duties as of, as of last night. So what does a typical day then look like for you at the tower? A full 24-hour duty. We start uh, our duties on the tower itself at 9 o'clock in the morning, and we don't end till the next day until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. What all of the tasks do you have as part of that duty? What we do is there's several different cer- ceremonies. Um, the first one we have in the morning at nine, uh, basically nine o'clock, 
uh, is what we call the uh, opening ceremonies where we do a mini parade. The public's there obviously watching us. We do a parade going down to open up the tower itself to the public. And then, uh, of course, the public that's watching us, there are special guests that have come in. There's something uh, I've been told it's upwards of a, almost a year and a half, two-year waiting list to get in to see this. And then uh, and then we have our regular sentry duty boxes. We just see on TV the guys standing in the little boxes doing uh, drill there for the public. And then we also have uh, another ceremony called a Ceremony of the Word where we march kind of like through the crowd. It's actually kind of interesting. Down to the history and significance behind it is to get the uh, password for the day. And then we have another ceremony in the evening about 9.30, which actually kind of starts off. We kick off officially at 10 o'clock for the actual ceremony. And that's the ceremony of the keys. We lock up the tower for the evening. And then through the night, we do little patrols, you know, as a visual presence of uh, security for the uh, crown jewels of the tower. My goodness. So it's a lot to take in for sure. And I'm wondering what the reaction from the tourists and even the British are to seeing not the usual sentry there, but in fact, Royal Canadian Air Force members instead. Yeah, so it, that, that's interesting. I've uh, had uh, quite a bit of time chatting with uh, civilian populace, obviously, in, in and around the tower because they're everywhere. Um, anyways, it's been positive. Um, they normally see the red coats as we traditionally see. Uh, they're surprised to see a different uniform. So, of course, right away they come over and talk to us and ask who we are and what we're doing there. And they're really proud of the fact that uh, it's a, that uh, we have the honor of coming here as part of the uh, British Commonwealth and being invited to do this tasking. And they're like, awesome job. You know, they're, they're taking pictures with us and everything else. So it's been a positive experience, totally. Well, one of the other things, Jerry, that the tourists like to do is to try and make these guys smile or try to make them laugh. And if you can imagine the training involved there to make sure you don't break character, I can only imagine. Yeah, I mean, they must just pinch themselves the whole time that they're standing there when people are trying to make them laugh. Well, what else can you do, right? If you can't laugh, then maybe crying is the best alternative. Yeah, you're just supposed to, they're just supposed to ignore them, right? Supposed to be stoic. That's right. Just stand there like that. Congratulations to Jason. He'll be stationed in London until July 17th. So if you are going to Great Britain, if you're going to London before then, you may see one of our own guarding the Tower of London. Very exciting times. Last year, only 6% of Manitobans got an HIV test. Healthcare providers in Manitoba want to see that number rise. Today, National HIV Testing Day will be marked in Manitoba for the very first time. To talk more about the importance of getting tested, we're joined now by Dr. Joss Reimer, Provincial Medical Officer of Health responsible for sexually transmitted and blood-borne infections. Good morning, Dr. Reimer. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you know what? This is an important message. And before we uh, took a break for weather, I, I mentioned that I was concerned that we're seeing a rise in the, the prevalence of STIs overall in our society. Are we, plain and simply, uh, engaging in unprotected sex more often than we ought to be? Well, I think that that's a that's a tough thing to know for sure whether people are engaging in condomless sex more often um, or if it's something else that's going on. But I agree with you; the numbers are going up. And in fact, in Manitoba, we right now have the the biggest outbreak of syphilis we've ever had. 
um, as well as outbreaks of gonorrhea, hepatitis B and hepatitis C going on in different parts of the province. So what we really want to get the message out uh, is that regardless of, of whether or not you regularly use condoms or occasionally use condoms, if you're having sex, go and talk to your healthcare provider about getting tested. Have we become complacent about HIV? I don't know that we've become complacent. I think that there's a mixture of two things. One is that it is less scary because there's really good treatment available. Uh, it used to be something that was killing people very quickly, and now most people who have HIV can live a normal lifespan as long as they're getting regular treatment. And so that's really good news. But like you mentioned, sometimes when you get rid of that scary factor, it can make people a little less worried about things and less likely to get uh, tested. So I do want to encourage people that because it's not scary, that's actually a good reason to go get tested because we have good management available. And for most other sexually transmitted infections, we actually have cures available. So as mentioned, only 6% of Manitobans got an HIV test last year. Uh, why is that number so low? Do, do we have some theories on this or do we have fact? Do we know why, Dr. Reimer? So we have done some surveys with people uh, who come to the Manitoba HIV program about why they do or don't come in. And probably the number one reason is just that it's hard, it's not convenient. It's hard to get around to doing it. And I think we can all relate to that, that we intend to go and see our doctor about something, but find it hard to find time to do that. And that's part of what today is about. So there's a number of clinics around the city who are trying to have a special clinic for testing today. Um, and people are always encouraged to talk to their own healthcare provider as well. And then on top of that, there are several clinics within Winnipeg and Brandon that have regular STI clinics uh, every week. So those are just available for drop-in anytime it's convenient to people. And the other thing I think that we already talked about is some of the anxiety and fear around the diagnosis. So I, I just want to reiterate that there is a cure available for most of those infections. And even for the ones that don't have a cure, we have much better treatment than we used to. So what are the options? Again, like these clinics, where, where can people find out about them? Where are they located? Uh, if, if we can make this accessible, and I agree with you, I think you, you take away some of the anxiety surrounding this. If it's, you know, maybe you don't even want to go to your regular doctor you might want to go somewhere else. How do, you, how do you go about that and find out about these clinics? So there is a list of, of testing sites, and I'll just um, some of the ones that are doing a special clinic today include Nine Circles, Community Health Centre, Mount Carmel Clinic, Aboriginal Health and Wellness, Hope Centre, Clinic with a K, Uville and Women's Health Clinic, and Norwest. Um, and then in Brandon as well, we have Brandon Public Health and the 7th Street Access Centre doing clinics um, but then, like you said, on top of that, if one of those doesn't work for somebody, you're always encouraged to go talk to your own provider or to go to the clinics who have regular um, STI clinics every week. Now, th this this ha shows no boundaries socioeconomically, right? STIs uh, affect everyone. STIs definitely affect everyone. And we do see sometimes some people who are at higher risk. But overall, the message is if you're having sex, you should probably get tested because 25% of people who have HIV don't even know it. And I think about even a recent patient of mine who didn't find out that she had HIV until she presented to hospital in labor for having her baby, um, which makes things really complicated. And so we want people to get tested before those complications happen, because although we have cures and treatment available, when people have an infection that lingers for a long time, it can cause damage in their body, and that becomes much harder for us to manage.
So anyone having sex should get tested. So go talk to your healthcare provider about whether or not uh, you should be tested for any of these infections. Dr. Joss Reimer is a provincial medical officer of health responsible for sexually transmitted and blood-borne infections. She joins us now. Last question for you, Dr. Reimer. I know back in the day there were those that were con- they were concerned that if they had an HIV test, it might come back to haunt them in terms of their life insurance or other uh, sorts of coverages uh, down the road, can can you lay any fears uh, for those that that have that thought process involved in not getting tested? So life insurance, each company is going to have their own rules, and so I can't speak on behalf of of life insurance and whether or not they would um, have this as part of the factor. But what I do know is that if you want to live a long and healthy life and you don't want to use life insurance, then getting tested is the best thing that you can do. Um, and for people who have more risk factors, if they're using IV drugs, for example, getting tested really frequently is even more important because you know that you're being exposed potentially more often. So, so while I can't speak on behalf of insurance companies, I can definitely say that if you don't want to use that health insurance, that the best way to go about it is to find out early so that we can get you on adequate treatment or if it's one of the other infections, get it out of your system completely. Thank you for sharing this information with us on this National HIV Testing Day, Dr. Reimer. We appreciate the access and the candor. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Always happy to be here. Dr. Joss Reimer joining us this morning. She is, one more time, Provincial Medical Officer of Health responsible for sexually transmitted and blood-borne infections. Only 6% of Manitobans were tested for HIV last year. U.S. President Donald Trump, well, he's not holidaying. Man, this guy is everywhere. He'll be speaking, um, well, in our neck of the woods this evening. Global's Amber McGookin heading to Fargo, North Dakota to see what the atmosphere is like. Good morning, Amber. Oh, I got to wait. Hold on, Amber. I'm not used to sitting in this chair. Now I got to press the button. Are you there? Good morning, Amber. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. So how much gas did you put in, in the vehicle? Just enough to get you across the border or did you fill up? Um, well, we are still on our way. So we are gonna, we're going to fill up first. We're fill not up take first? Any <laughs> yes, we're going to fill up first. But we'll probably leave it and fill up on that side of the border before we head over here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so Shields is a place I like to go to buy sporting goods and jerseys and stuff like that. Shields Arena tonight mm-hmm. will have several thousand individuals uh, waiting to see President Donald Trump. Two visits to this part of the world in, in the last week or so. Very unique. Yeah, so he's going to be speaking at a rally at Shields Arena there in Fargo, uh, starting at 7 o'clock. He's in town to support Republican Senate candidate Kevin Kramer. He's currently the state's congressman, but Donald Trump is there to support him, rally uh, some more supporters, I guess, for himself as well. So he's expected to talk about some hot-button issues, as we know, the trade war and uh, travel ban, and of course, the recent criticism he's been getting about his zero tolerance immigration policy. Yeah, you know, and being this close to the Canadian border, sometimes I think as a as a Manitoban, we have more in common with folks in North Dakota and Minnesota than we do quite often with folks in British Columbia and Quebec. We are we're we're maybe closer cousins on that front. And so for as Republican as North Dakota can be at times, they they also a lot of business owners raising concerns about these uh, about this trade war that that's pending and, and we may in fact be in the middle of. 
Yeah, when I was in Grand Forks a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I was talking to a few people who didn't want to do interviews or saying, you know, they were big Trump supporters. Now they're they're unhappy with some of the decisions he's made. I don't know if they fully switched in uh, the 2016 presidential election. It was 64 percent of the votes went to Trump in North Dakota. So but we're also, like you said, a huge trading partner of them. I do have some numbers, 87 percent of exports from the state go to Canada, and that makes up more than $4 billion in trade going north. So this is an issue that um, what I've heard from business owners down there, they are worried about that it'll affect them on both sides of the border. For example, the steel tariffs, when those go on Canadian imports, the American companies that are selling steel are going, oh, well, if it's going to cost them more to buy from Canadians, I can also increase my prices. So it's hitting them on both sides of the border. And from the people I've talked to, they are very concerned about this. So we'll see if this is still an issue. I was there a few weeks ago. We'll see how they're feeling today. Now, Grand Forks and Fargo, obviously a popular destination for for folks from Manitoba to spend some time on their holidays. We're heading into the long weekend. Is there concern down there or or is this part of your fact-finding mission to to find out if some of the pledges Canadians are making to not go to the United States while this is going on and to buy more Canadian products is going to affect uh, tourism and the amount of money that Canadians are spending in those two cities? Yeah, it's something that I asked people about last time, too, because I was thinking, you know, I haven't really heard a lot of my friends going across the border. But what I heard um, frequently was that they were thinking that it often was to do with the exchange rate. So with Canadian dollar not going as far, that's that was a big deterrent. I'm not sure how many people are using that as a main reason or if they're using it as a, a way to make a stance. But it would be interesting to see how many license plates. I know when I was there last time, we didn't see very many Manitoba plates. When you know I used to go, you'd see, you know, the mall parking lot full of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if people are making a stand, or if it also has to do with the exchange rate that um, the people there were crediting for people um, Manitobans not coming across the border as frequently. You like Mexican food, Amber? Do I like Mexican food? Mm-hmm. Yes. Paradiso. If you've never been, put it on your list of places <laughs> to eat. We have a list. People have been throwing a lot of places at us. Also making a lot of requests for items they would like us to bring back. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I, I cannot keep track. I've just been letting go in, in one ear and out the other. <laughs> <laughs> well, just you can bring me back anything you want, just as long as it does yeah. not have a Minnesota Wild logo on it, okay? <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Thank you, Amber. Appreciate it. Drive Thanks. safe. I know we'll be hearing from you uh, later on in the day and tomorrow. Amber Magookan, <laughs> Global News reporter. She's on her way to Far Fargo, North Dakota, where President Donald Trump will make an appearance, a campaign-style appearance, at Shields Arena tonight. So, you know, if you want to go down and check that out, uh, you still got time to get down to Fargo. One of our favorite guests is here, Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman is here. He is a psychologist with a Clinic Psychology Manitoba. It's our monthly Psychology in the City segment couple topics we want to discuss today. One is separation anxiety. We've seen uh, what's going on with immigration in the United States, uh, Raymond, and, you know, obviously what some of these kids are doing and going through with being separated from their parents is overwhelming. But you don't have to look that far and look at anything that dramatic to realize that kids and being separated from their parents ever or for the first time can be a very traumatic traumatic event in one's life. It doesn't matter what it is. Yes, absolutely. 
Um, so separation anxiety is a fairly normal thing. It happens to most people, especially children at an early age. It weans off at a certain point in time. After the age of two, it starts to get a little bit better. Uh, but it can happen in adults as well, too, generally when there's a, a perceived lack of safety. Hold on. Uh, adults can go through this as yeah, well? Yeah, adults can go through it as well, too. And oh. usually connected to a, a person who they feel like is their support person. Wow. Yeah, and it, it usually goes hand in hand with adults with other uh, anxiety disorders okay. and problems as well, too. So with kids, what would, what should we be on the lookout for? Or should we just assume uh, that whether uh, your son or daughter or your child uh, is, is 3, 4, 5, 12, 13, 14, 16, 17, 18, if it's the first time away from home or away from mom and or dad? Well, what we want to think about is that anxiety is a fairly normal experience, right? Anytime we face something new and different, there's always going to be a little bit of that anxiety. The more we feel comfortable with and confident with our ability to do things independently, the less of that anxiety that we have. And most of us will kind of go through that and figure out, you know, we're okay. Start a new job, go to a new city, you know, you're starting off in a new place, you have some of that. So that's some sense of what to relate to. Um, there are times where that anxiety can start to become problematic, whether it interferes with people's everyday living or children's ability to attend school. Um, and there's ways to kind of address those kinds of things. Um, but there's a couple of th components that will contribute to that. Number one is experience. Well, number one is a sense of connection and a sense of safety. Um, if the attachment is good and there's no other circumstances like what's happening in the states, um, you know, then then everything that then you proceed to the next step. And it would it would be uh, perceived as fairly normal for there to be a tiny bit of anxiety. Yeah. But the stronger the connection. Under normal circumstances, the better equipped a, a child is to d deal with that separation. Is, is that what I'm getting from well, you? Well, actually, there's different types of attachment. So um, there's a healthy attachment, and then mm. there's an overly connected attachment, okay. and then there's like a not so good attachment. So there's different terms that psychologists use for that. But basically, um, the healthy attachment is one where we know that you can rely on the parent, uh, and that if the parent goes away, and they'll they, you know the child knows that the child the parent will come back. Then there's an, an anxious attachment where um, children are not so trustworthy. You know, they're not sure when the parent will come back, and so they cling to that parent. Um, and then there's this kind of where the attachment is not very good between the parent and the child, where they don't care. They don't care if the parent is gone. They are not looking for that because the attachment is very poor. My kids uh, approaching their twelfth birthday, and so now they're trying to assert their independence a little bit. Yeah, you know, a few weeks ago we went to uh, went to an afternoon uh, playoff hockey game, Jackie and I, and the boys were like, "You know, we can stay by ourselves." And they were very defiant, and they didn't want to do this. They didn't want a babysitter. They didn't want to go to their grandparents. And so we've given them a tiny bit of freedom, you know, an hour or so at a time. And eventually, I just kind of said to them, "I said, look, it's Sunday afternoon." Mm -hmm. And I don't want you alone over the supper period on a Sunday. That's when you have separation anxiety. That's when I have, <laughs> and I feel like I'm doing something. And so finally, I had to relate to my children the time that my mom went to work at 4 o'clock on a Saturday and didn't come home until 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And I was... 12 or 13, and I had little siblings that I was looking after. And so it wasn't until I told that story that the boys understood where I was coming from. So sometimes it's the parents, too, that are having the issue, right? Yeah. So anxiety with children isn't always about anxiety in children. Sometimes it can reflect the anxiety of the parent as well, too. 
So anytime we work with children, we often work with families as well too and to determine where a lot of that anxiety is coming from. In our relationships, we carry a lot of that baggage, right, about our past experience. And, and And that's that's one example that I can use right now to show that, yeah, it's, you know, we joke about the George Costanza line in Seinfeld. It's it's yeah. not you, it's me. Sometimes yeah. it isn't you. It is me. It is, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so our our health is not just tied to ours. Like, we're, we don't live in bubbles, right? Right. Um, we're connected with other people. And so our difficulties can often impact on the difficulties of other people. And that would go for separation anxiety with parents as well, too. So we have that transference of experience, right? Most certainly. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you and I have talked about this before, this concept of the architecture of thought. Right. You know, that our thoughts are based very much on our experiences. And so we kind of build that architecture. Um when a parent has had some very difficult experiences in their lives, you know, their architecture of their thoughts is slightly different and that starts to impact on the architecture of their children's thoughts as well too. Um, sometimes it's functional and it makes total sense um, and other times we know that it's more the anxiety speaking than the reality. I've always said I, I don't want to, to to transfer my fears to my kids. Mm. I don't like going in the ocean. When we were in California a few years ago, yeah. my kids want to put their feet in the Pacific Ocean, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm not big on heights, but I'm not letting them go on a roller coaster by themselves. So I go with them. I don't want that transference of my fear to them. So far, it seems to be working okay, but there may come a point where what I'm carrying around with me is going to affect them negatively. How do I guard against that? So there are multiple things that would contribute to difficulties with mental health, and sometimes it's a genetic component, sometimes it's a temp- like or a genetic or temperamental component, sometimes it's the experiences in our lives. And those experiences in our lives can include what we're taught and what we're taught by our parents. So if we're taught by our parents to always be on edge, to, you know, the world is not safe, you know, that uh, the, the only place of safety is with us. That's one way, just one way separation anxiety can, Im- can impede people's lives. Um, so, I mean, I think we as parents, any parents out there listening will know that they've had to face many of their own fears right. and their own difficulties, their own demons when they've had their own children. There are times when the, that, that problem is just so difficult that it's hard to let go and it shows up in what we teach our children. Greg Mackling, along with Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman, we are talking about a lot of different things. Really where we started was separation anxiety and then this idea of uh, fear transference between parents and their kids. We got a text message with regard to separation anxiety, but maybe not with kids, but maybe an adult relationship where someone moves away, Dr. Abdurrahman, and then, sorry, uh then they don't reestablish contact with you after they leave the city. That sounds like a control situation where it's like, oh my gosh, they're gone and I'm not hearing from them. Well, anxiety is all about control and the lack of it. So um, what the listener described, and uh, I hope I answer your question appropriately there. Uh, And if not, please feel free to message back. Um, There is such thing as an anxiety disorder where anxiety gets so problematic interferes with our lives, but then there's also this general experience of anxiety and stress that we can experience in our everyday day-to-day life that causes difficulties, and this is one example. Um, So whenever we lack some information um, 
or ha- are presented with distress or uncertainty, it's bound to increase our anxiety. And this is an example where somebody you've really cared about and had a connection with has left, and they've not provided you with any kind of parameters or information on why they've not been in touch. And that's bound to increase the anxiety because you have a sense of uncertainty. Here you had a very strong relationship, you were very connected with the person, and now all of a sudden you have nothing. Uh, And it's not just missing that person, it's not knowing why they've not been in touch. Um, And that's critical why communication is really important in all aspects of life because when we communicate with people, we provide people with information and parameters that helps guide the way that we think and kind of builds that architecture as we talked about. Mm -hmm. So yes, what you're experiencing is 100% normal. The way to go about it would be to to find a resolution to this is to find some information that might alleviate that. Reaching out might be the one way to directly address that. You know, I haven't heard from you in a long time. I hope you're doing okay. I hope nothing has gone bad. I don't know what's happened. And that, if they provide some information, that might give you a sense. It it might be that, you know, you might be something you don't want to hear or it might be something you're, it's understandable, but that will still give you some direction to go to some form of resolution. There are times, though, where we just don't get that information. And it becomes up to us then to kind of insert in some reasonable expectations of why that might occur. You know, whether the person is busy or you know, tied up with other things. And sometimes that anxiety comes from the fact that we might take it personally, right? That I'm not likable or somehow I wasn't important. It's important to realize with relationships as distance occurs that it's not always personal. You know, that relationships do end in one way or the other, but it's not always tied to us. We don't have to hold responsibility for that. It may just be time and distance and them having busy life wherever they are. So if you're listening, at minimum, I'd like you to take this away from you, that it's probably not you. Dr. Abdurrahman, when, when we when we have a conversation uh, about mental health issues, we look to government, we look to different agencies to, to help us. We look at individuals like you and the folks that, that, that are in the practice that, that you conduct for answers. Uh, we're coming up on a civic election. I always feel bad for the city because it feels as though, you know, if we're talking about informational lack of information and communication, it feels as though the city is really at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to funding for a variety of different things to the point where their funding decisions for the city are very incumbent and dependent upon the funding they get from the province and from the federal government. It's got to be difficult for them to to make priorities. What sort of priorities would you like to see the city make as it pertains to to mental health, uh, depression, and and those issues? Well, frankly, I don't buy that (laughs) because um, (laughs) I I think there's a lot of politics out there. I've worked for well over 10 years as an advocate for issues related to mental health, um, and it frustrates me to no end when people say there's an issue of budget and we don't control it because it's baloney. I've seen different budgets, and I've worked with where where some of those funds can be allocated and reallocated, and there's ways to make things work with the money that we have. So I call baloney on that. Um, and even if there were, even if there was no issue of funding, like let's say we had no money, there are ways to make things work. Information can be free. Uh, our team, for example, put out this Win Love campaign, hoping that leaders would kind of pick up on this and kind of use that information. There's free information out there anyway, the Canadian Psychological Association, the American Psychological Association. There's information out there, out there. that's just free and sitting there. Why wouldn't we use it? You know, it makes no sense that we've come to an age in, 
in civilization that we have all this amazing science and not all of it is in ivory towers and yet we act on nothing. Um, and that's a frustrating piece for me. Um, so to me, this is about calling out to those leaders, including civic leaders, including um, the mayor and the mayoral candidates. You have a really beautiful opportunity ahead of you um, because everything that those people do has to do with dealing with people. And whenever you're dealing with people, you're dealing with psychology. Um, you have information available to you and you can create policies and practice that are just a tweak of wording and policies and how we choose to engage in some of those. It's not about creating you know, a brand new something fancy with a lot of money. It's about how we choose to engage with people. It's about determining the right goals. It's about how to achieve those goals and it's how to engage people in those goals. And that doesn't cost money. That, that, that costs heart, that costs motivation, that costs an interest in the people and not just the politics. Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman is a psychologist with Clinic Psychology right here in Manitoba, right here in Winnipeg. Clinic Psychology Manitoba want to get the title proper. Thank you, Raymond. Always a pleasure. Well, life on the farm is kind of laid back. Ain't much an old country boy like me can't hack. Early to rise, early in a sack. Thank God I'm a country boy. Man, this song still gets the clapping going at Jets games. All these years later. That is, of course, John Denver, the late, great John Denver, coming up October 4th. A special treat for John Denver fans. Rocky Mountain High, an evening with John Denver, is coming to the Centennial Concert Hall. To give us a preview of the show, joined now by Canadian recording artist Rick Worrall and John Denver's original conductor, Lee Holdridge. And good morning to you both. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. How are you today? Doing fantastic. How can you be bad whenever a John Denver song comes into your life? Whether it's a slower song, uh, I'm thinking of leaving on a jet plane, such an inspirational song. We'll talk about Chantel Kreviadzic's uh, rendition of that maybe later on uh, in our conversation. Yeah. But John Denver, why don't we start with you, Lee? Just his music, it, it, it really lit up our lives. Well, it certainly it certainly did, and it still does today. And I think, you know, it's like great folk music. It's what it's become. It's become universal uh, of music. A lot of the songs are part of people's psyche and part of the culture, and uh, it's it, it's terrific. I always thought that would happen. I felt that a lot of the songs were like they would become down the road, like some of the great English folk songs and Celtic folk songs and. Stephen Foster and all of that, and I, I see that happening with certain songs. Rick, in your in, in, so you, Rick, in your estimation, yes. sorry, Lee, I, your line is cutting out no, just a okay. tiny no, bit. No, go on. Uh, Rick, uh, go on. in your estimation, what is it about Jen, John Denver's music that that connects with people? Well, I think if one, it reflected a time. You know, uh, first of all, the positive uh, nature of all songs. Lee and I had this conversation. I was looking hard to try and find a, a song in the minor key that John had written, and Lee basically said, "Well, there weren't any." And that, to me, speaks volume. Every song that he wrote was in a it, it was in a major key. Yeah. And if you know music, you know major keys really support is, is about positive. In, in whether it be a ballad or you know, a, a, you know, just a regular song. But that was one of the things that stuck out to me. I, I loved his lyric writing, too. I always felt that he had a, a great way of, of, of writing, you know, uh, the words and, and, and communicating to people. And, uh, and as Lee will tell you, too, as Lee will tell you, too, 
what was really important was his guitar playing. John was an exceptional guitar player, and a lot of people didn't realize that. Yes, yes, very much so. A lot of people don't realize that, but one of the things that Rick and I have worked very hard is we've really, truly recreated the original arrangements that John, not only am I bringing the original orchestral arrangements that I did with him all those years on records and concerts, but uh, Rick and his band have worked really hard to recreate the guitar parts and the exact chord structures and 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 arpeggios and everything that John did. So it's a very authentic representation of John's music. Uh, Lee, with, with the with the passing of Gord Downey uh, last year, the frontman of the Tragically Hip, we had this discussion about Canadiana and how the Tragically yes. Hip. You know, you could you could almost do a history course uh, just based around the music of the Tragically Hip and learn a lot about Canada. I always felt like I learned a lot yes. about America from John Denver. Like, I, the probably the only reason I ever wanted to go to West Virginia was because of John Denver. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you know, I, I gotta tell you, John spent a lot of time in Canada too. He loved coming up into the Northwest and traveled and skied and hiked a lot in that area. So there's, there's a kinship. I think people that love nature and, and love the positive, as Rick says, and, and a celebration of life. You know, John had his darker moments in his personal life, but he never brought him to the studio and he never brought him to the concerts. It was always about the music and about the songs. And, and that was what was important to him. And that's why they exude that kind of uplifting quality, I think. Rick, what are we going to see in this show, in this production coming up October 4th? Well, you're going to see one, one thing you're not going to see is you're not going to see somebody in trying to impersonate John Denver for, for me. And I think Lee and, you know, uh, and I know of many of the people I talked to, there was only one. So what we really try to do is celebrate his music. We do stay true as Lee just pointed out. We do stay very true to uh, John's style. And, uh, but, but nobody is dressing up like John. Nobody is, you know, we're, we're not trying to sound like him. Uh, for some reason, I sound, yeah, you know, my vocal quality, I don't sound like John, but there's something about my vocal quality that is reminiscent of John. So when people are in the audience, they don't, they're not, they're not sort of going, oh, that doesn't sound like John or it's very, it's easy. It's easy to get into. And so they're going to see and hear a lot of, of John's big hits. And uh, some of the ones that were, weren't that big, but are really a lot of fun to play and were great songs. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think and we have a, we have a couple of opera singers joining us, right, Rick? I mean, we have a, we have a couple of local opera singers joining us. Mention that too, too. Yes, actually, that, that's please. a really good point. We one of the things that Lee did a couple of years back is was a great project called the Great Voices Sing John Denver, and it was a collection of some of the best known opera singers uh, doing John Denver songs, including Paso de Domingo. Well, what we've done is we've invited local uh, opera stars uh, in uh, in Winnipeg, and one is Chad Abramson. He is our, our tenor, and um, Laura Laura Sikowitz is uh, is our soprano guest. And we do a duet together, like uh, Laura will and I will do a duet, and and Chad and I will do a duet, and then they do a solo and perform in the, the arrangement in this Great Voices version. And it's a wonderful way of showing how John's music really crossed the genres, you know, really crossed over and was able to be sung in different different ways. When we think about John Denver's uh, music and, and his presence, I just, you know... <laughs> I just, Colorado, 
<laughs> here I am on this Americana thing. Like, you know, uh, yeah. it's just an automatic connection to, to the mountains. I close my eyes and I, I, I see mountains mm-hmm. when I hear them singing. Yep. Yeah. It, it, well, absolutely. It's hard not to see that. Yeah. Go ahead, mm-hmm. Lee. So what, no, uh, what I, other... So- saying, uh, but, uh, Sorry, Lee. It's- not just not just the, the, the mountains, but, you know, some of the love songs and the songs about children and the, the, the poetry of... of, of, of so, as Rick mentioned, the lyrics are very poetic. And if you start listening to them, you say, wow, that's that's a very... Beautiful statement, you know, I mean, a song like Rhymes and Reasons and, you know, the way it tributes uh, to the innocence of the children, it's it's very touching, very moving. Now, before we let you go here, I'd be remiss without mentioning, I mentioned it off the top, Chantal Kreviazic has an incredible version of Leaving on a Jet Plane and her interaction with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. She's done a couple of concerts here where her music has mm-hmm. been translated and she's worked with the symphony and it's absolutely mm-hmm. incredible for so for those that have never seen pop music uh that's been done and and turned into orchestral music. Tell everyone uh both of you we'll start with Lee what a treat it is to to cross that sort of uh barrier and and to take the popular music yes. and connect it to symphonic yes. music. Well, you know, John was one of the first people to do that. He he immediately saw the value of the orchestra, and he loved the sound of the orchestra. It was just, he was ecstatic about it, and loved the idea of performing with symphony orchestras. And we did that many times, you know, during the especially during the 80s. And um, what it does is it just brings a kind of a... a, a a deeper sense to the songs. It opens them up. It they makes them broader. It's quite, quite a, quite a, a lot of beauty that is brought into it. And I think seeing that stage with, with the band and Rick and all the singers and the orchestra and everybody on stage together, it's very exciting. It's quite a, quite a, quite a treat to see this combination. And this is right in keeping with John's philosophy because he really dreamed about all this all the time. And we made it happen quite often. Last word to you, Rick, on this. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And one of the things, as, as Lee was saying, having that symphonic music, you know, from a performing standpoint, you know, when you're on stage and you hear these songs and, and you hear the, the symphony, the way they were first conducted. I saw Lee, the, and sorry, I'm going to date you, Lee, but how this really turned me on. I saw in 1973, I saw John Denver in concert at the CNE in Toronto and Lee was conducting the Toronto symphony. It blew me away and it stuck in my mind. And now to be able to be on stage with the Winnipeg symphony and Lee conducting, it's surreal to me. And I think the audience is going to just have so much fun with this concert. We're, we're at the Centennial Concert Hall and it's, it's just going to be so much fun. Thanks for putting up with the challenges of having uh, two guests via telephone, gentlemen. We really appreciate it. Thank you kindly. And we, we really look forward to seeing you in October. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you, and you're welcome. Lee Holdridge and Rick Worrell joining us. October 4th, special treat for John Denver fans, Rocky Mountain High. An evening with John Denver. Hey, uh, just about every one of us, if you've ever stayed in a hotel or traveled a little bit, you've probably heard of the Hyatt brand of hotels. It's a worldwide chain. They have a spectacular list of properties. But 
They have no hotels in Winnipeg. That's about to change. In fact, you may remember back in the middle of of this month, a couple of weeks ago, they broke ground on a hotel out in southwest Winnipeg down by Ikea. It'll be called Hyatt House with 135 guest rooms. But what you may not have known, and I'm hoping we're telling it uh, to you first here on 680 CJOB, that they're opening a second hotel here in Winnipeg on Portage Avenue East, 138 Portage Avenue East, in fact, and the former name of this building, the Kiwaden Building or the Crowley Building, 138 Portage Avenue East to be specific. Joining us to fill us in on the details surrounding Hyatt's emergence into the Winnipeg marketplace is Scott Riche. He is Regional Vice President of Development for Hyatt in Canada. Good morning, Scott. Thank you for taking time with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, so where the heck have you been? You know, everybody's uh, <laughs> learning what a great place Winnipeg is. What took you guys so long? Uh, yeah, great question. Uh, we're as a as an organization, we're we're a little bit newer to the franchise uh, growth platform as it relates to some of these brands that we see going into um, uh, gateway markets similar to uh, to Winnipeg. So we opened our Canadian development office here in Canada back in early 2015. So we're about three and a half, four years into our mandate, and uh, things have been going really well. But uh, I can say that Winnipeg was always uh, high on the list when we got started, and we sort of mapped out the country and uh, the opportunity to be part of such a significant intersection as uh, Portage and Maine is is obviously very special. Yes, uh, not only to uh, to us as Canadians, but uh, to to the brand. Uh, they they understand the significance of that in the city of Winnipeg and and, and in the province. Meant no disrespect. I did not mean to interrupt you in any way, there, Scott. The 144 guest room Hyatt Place, and as I mentioned, 138 Portage Avenue. This is a seven-story historic building. This is, uh, you know, ambitious might be the wrong word, but it is a terrific project uh, that will see not only the building that exists now undergo major changes, there'll be a little bit of an addition to the building as well, right? That's correct. Yeah, we're going to be adding uh, four love, four stories to the top of it. And there's also going to be a, a punch out to the east side where we're sort of moving the core of the building out a little bit. Um, but it, obviously, you know, special building. Um, we want, we took every effort to celebrate its history. We uh, we 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 understand the you know sort of the context of the exchange district and that being sort of on the on the doorstep of it. And it's uh, it's something that we wanted to we wanted to sort of enhance. We didn't we wanted to make use of it as best we could. And we think we've done that, but we'll let the city be the judge once we uh, once we get open uh, later next year. No, what's the challenge of integrating a brand new facility into an older building like this, Scott? Yeah, it's uh, you know it comes with pros and it comes with cons. Uh, definitely in terms of uh, uh, you know you, you've got a structure. It's a very well built building, so uh, from from an architectural standpoint, there's a lot there to work with. Um, it can support you know the the structure of it can support what's going on uh, on the top, uh, but at the same time, you know you're basically gutting out the core. Uh, we really like the facade. We're going to do some enhancements to it, but um, we think that the it's got great street presence, and we you know we're going to try and embrace that as much as we can. Now, now of course. Uh, we mentioned off the top that you're doubling your presence in Canada, but it, this isn't happening by default. You're not coming to Winnipeg by default because you have to, and the, and some spreadsheet says you need to, <laughs> right? That, that uh, clearly, when you invest or 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 partner or or work with someone who's going to develop a building like this, this is sort of a signature project, isn't it? Yeah. 
You're absolutely right. It's it's very proactive. Uh, this was this was something we were looking at. We had worked for a number of years with with a number of local partners uh, on identifying. We we looked at a couple sites to be uh, to be honest. We we probably looked at two or three sites that all um, sort of offered potential. But when this one came along, um, you know. Per the details we're talking about, it was just it was too good to pass up, and and obviously the location is is fantastic, and yeah, Winnipeg's a, a very important city uh, in this country. It's uh, you, you know it's very very significant to us. So we actually see this property as you know both of them, uh, the Hyatt House down in the southwest, and uh, this one being you know mar- marquee uh, members of the brand. And sure. not to take anything away from what's happening in Southwest Winnipeg, that development and that uh, whole area of Winnipeg just seems to be on a roll and it is it, it's sort of taking care of itself. But we've been nurturing the downtown, you know, with uh, several marquee projects that involve a lot of government money, public investment, and that public investment feels as though it's starting to pay off with private investment uh, like this new Hyatt Place Hotel. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think I think both projects are, are special for their own reasons. But uh, yeah, we're we're excited about both for 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 different reasons uh, as it relates to downtown. I agree with you. I, th- I think it's an exciting place, and I think it's got a, a really bright future. And to see what's going on in some of the submarkets of Winnipeg is is uh, is interesting as well. So we're we're very very excited to be part of both of them, and uh, look forward to being sort of proud and active members of the community. Scott Richet is a regional vice president of development in Canada for the Hyatt Hotel chain. And one uh, last question before I go, Scott, just a general question maybe in terms of hotel and and how they work. Uh, You mentioned the idea uh, of franchising. So uh, it's not always the, the, the mother or father corporation that run these hotels, right? Sometimes they, they are uh, as a result of an agreement between an operator to, to use the name and, and the business plan. That's right. That's actually what defines most of the uh, most of the projects, uh, not only in Canada but but globally. Um, the, the the brands that like Hyatt, who I'm work for, um, basically provides you know guidance, uh, design and construction um, standards and, and technical standards. We provide the sales and marketing platform. Uh, in some cases, we're going to operate the hotels. Uh, like in this case, we're going to be operating the one on Portage. Um, Hyatt's actually managing it. But you're right. Uh, most of uh, most of the hotel projects uh, are ones where you've got a, a private an investor uh, of some type, um, be it you know pension fund or REIT, uh, private equity, whatnot, and then they're working with the brands uh, to facilitate the uh, the properties. That's right, Scott. We see a lot of announcements uh, come and go. Some come to fruition. I've already seen activity at this building. This this is this is happening, right? Oh yeah, I was uh, was standing there with a hard hat on uh, two weeks ago. So yeah, there's uh, there is there is a fair amount of activity going on there, and there's as you know, there's a lot of activity going on uh, just in the you know just across the street and and down the street, and so it's a, a very active area, and uh, we we look forward to getting it open. Our target right now is for the end of next year. Uh, end of very very exciting. And we're talking about the 144 guest room Hyatt Place Hotel located at 138 Portage Avenue East in this historic building. Uh, that once upon a time was known as the Kiwaden building and once upon a time the Crowley building and also Hyatt House, which is construction underway there as well in southwest Winnipeg. 135 guest rooms. That'll be known as, uh, I think I just said, Hyatt House. Scott, thank you once again for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. Scott Richet is regional vice president of development in Canada for Hyatt. I'm Greg Mackling for Behind the Glass. Jerry, thank you for spending part of your week with us. And